incredibly excited to welcome Jamila Rakib onto the show. For our listeners, let me share a short bio with you. Jamila serves as the Executive Director of the Albert Einstein Institution based in Boston in the United States. The mission of the Einstein Institution is to advance the worldwide study and strategic use of non-violent action in conflict. Jamila holds a degree in management from Simmons College and joined the institution in 2002. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Jamila about her interesting career shortly and more about the work of the organisation. But for now, welcome Jamila to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. Thank you so much, Vicky. It's great to be with you. So the first question that I always ask of my guests is, where did it all start? What pulled you or drew you uh, towards this work that you do at the moment? So if you've been asking human rights professionals this question, then it may be that you're often hearing that it's hard to know when it started. Um, I've been thinking about human rights since I can remember, uh, though maybe I didn't quite think about it on those terms or formulate it that way. Um, I was born in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion and occupation. So my earliest memories are seeing a, a lot of suffering among people who were in some ways um, really quite vulnerable and defenseless uh, because it was in the context of a, a really brutal war. Um, but I was also left seeing so many examples of, of defiance um, and examples around me of people, you know, not giving in, uh, but but fighting back and uh, doing more than just surviving even, uh, but resisting and really refusing to passively, you know, accept their fates. Um, it was in some ways a really early lesson uh, into the, the injustice that exists in our world, um, but, but also the ways that even in, in the darkest corners of our world, you know, even under the most difficult circumstances, uh, people do what they can to fight for their rights and freedoms. Um, and that supporting them in those fights, in, in those struggles, is, is really of profound importance. Uh, but the fact that it could be a profession, I mean, that that I could have only dreamed of. You know, I didn't, didn't know that that would be possible. Um, and, and share with us a little bit, I just gave a, a small highlight there, of your own career path to date to where you are now as the Executive Director of the Albert Einstein Institution. Sure. So, so my own path, um, in some ways, has been very typical, and, and in some ways, you know, quite unusual. I think it's typical because, like um, so many young people, uh, I looked out on, on what felt very much like a very unjust world, uh, and I desperately wanted to make some contribution to making it less less unjust. Uh, and I was looking for an entry point that would allow me to do that, um, but I didn't really know what that was, and like so many young people, you know, in the absence of any kind of clear solution or path for myself, I tried to figure out what I could do to get whatever skills and capacities and opportunities that could be helpful for me. Um, and for me, that was at the time, a management degree. So I studied, uh, you know, management, uh, accounting, leadership, political science and international studies. Um, and part of it was trying to figure out how I could better understand the systems that were, you know, governing our world, uh, some of the, the reasons and 
uh, for for social and political problems that were at the root of you know so much suffering, and and just trying to figure out what tools were available to at least understand them, um, and that I studied business was in some ways an odd path, you know, but, but one, I think that actually prepared me well for, you know, understanding how people and resources could be used um, to accomplish different objectives. So uh, I applied to the Albert Einstein Institution right after receiving my BA. It was my first job. Um, and the idea was that it was going to give me time to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do next. Um, it was going to give me a couple of years, one or two years of experience, um, and and again the time and space uh, to to figure out what graduate program I wanted to apply to or what job I wanted to do next. And um, so that was that was twenty years ago. So that so the one or two year position ended up becoming really my life's work. Yeah, interesting what you say there about sort of how business lent itself actually to your career, um, and I think the beauty very much of, of human rights work is that you can come from so many different disciplines. Um, not does, doesn't have to be, let's say, the, the legal dis, legal sort of field or mm -hmm. discipline, and you can make a, a contribution. So it's interesting that you, right. you, your business degree sort of added, added value to that. So if we think about um, young people, young professionals today, who are looking to, to work and, and to break into the human rights sector, um, in your view, what contribution do you think that young people can play um, in the human rights discourse, in the human rights field today, and the value that they bring? Well, I think their value is really a, a, a profound one. Um, I think they're, uh, you know, amazing at so many things. And honestly, in my own work and in, in of their capacity to, you know, really recognize problems, uh, recognize problems in themselves you know this this is not right and unjust uh, but also to to see those problems in new ways um to to adapt you know adapt given given that we're in a changing world figure out new solutions uh be much more brave than many of us in terms of experimenting and innovating and i think you know this is this is of huge value and this is why our team's uh, absolutely must be intergenerational because human rights affects young people and young people understand other young people. And so if we're thinking about how to, you know, in terms of my own work, try, trying to figure out how to develop resources um, with them uh, and for them, then obviously young people are going to be at the center of that. Um, they're also great at, you know, understanding tools and technologies and, and social media that other young people use. Uh, this these tools are just you know rapidly evolving and it's really hard to keep up but young people seem to be doing a great job uh, at doing that absolutely and um yeah they're, they're head and shoulders certainly above <laughs> me in terms of in terms of their technology and expertise which is so critical for for human rights work today yes um yes. and in in particular sort of what what types of roles and i use that in a very general sense i suppose might fit young people um, in a way that they feel comfortable in the human rights world, you know, finding their place, if you like, um, in, the, in the human rights world? So I'm not sure about that, but I, I, I wouldn't say there's any area that's, that's closed off for young people. Um, I think it really has to do with their uh, interests, their skills, 
their level of experience. I understand that if they're new to the field, then it may be that they don't have a lot of structured uh, formal experience in, in different areas. But I think for I think we really have to look at young people, not just in terms of their formal experience, but all of the ways in which they engage with their own communities, you know, the, the, the education and, and, and insight uh, and wisdom that they have about issues and problems and injustices that, you know, people face, how they've, you know, engaged in organizing or mobilizing uh, against those problems. You know, I mean, we think a lot about movement work. If, if we're working with movements, then obviously experience working in movement is extremely critical, even at the, the most local level. And I found that these days, you know, a lot of young people, their entry point to human rights is often at a local movement level. Uh, and I think that is actually exactly right. Because uh, what it's done is allow them to begin experimenting uh, with organizing. Uh, it at the root of it also, it gives them a recognition of the of the power that regular people have in shaping their lives. That's a, such an important insight that it's not that outsiders advocate for our rights, but that people themselves are doing that. And our job is therefore how to support that. Um, that I think is an important insight. Um, understanding you know, how communities are interacting with, with institutions and with systems of power to advocate for their rights. Um, you know, what responses from opponents of human rights are, you know, the ways in which they disrupt these types of this type of organizing that, you know, to, to, to get a taste of that is extremely important. Um, you know, giving people an opportunity or giving young people an opportunity to understand leadership and to develop it. That I think is really great to develop as early as possible. Um, yeah, and so, so much more. So, I mean, I guess your question was about what are the kind of roles and responsibilities, but I think, you know, I, I wouldn't see any that, that, are, that are closed off to young people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you're, you're right, the sort of the, the power of, 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 the, of the movement there and what they can do at the very kind of granular gra grassroots level is, is invaluable. And, and that's where so many sort of campaigns start and issues start at that level. Right. So you mentioned there um, previously about um, working in rights is more than just a formal experience. But what I'm finding more and more is that for young people who want to progress and, uh, in their human rights career, that having some sort of advanced degree, be it a master's of some iteration, it's now much more the norm than the exception. And I just wondered if, if you had any insights on that and, mm -hmm. and thoughts about having that advanced mm -hmm studies so i'm not uh you know totally familiar with the, the the requirements and it may be that if young people you know uh, uh want uh careers in in specific organizations or bodies then it may be that that's uh that's what's required um obviously advanced degrees are are important they're important way to get expertise and knowledge uh but I don't believe that they're a requirement for making a contribution. Um, you know, those are those are paths that are not always available to us. Maybe they don't make sense for our lives, and I don't see why you know that should preclude us from from doing meaningful work. I mean, you know, you know my own path. Um, and sure, there are specific moments when maybe a, a graduate degree uh, might have been helpful uh, in some regard. Uh, 
but it's not often that I actually miss it or, or that I could have justified leaving this work to invest in one. Um, and it's still something I'm considering for my future. Um, but I, but I haven't needed it until now. Uh, having said that, you know, my own path has been a unique one and my situation is unique. And I do think it's a great way to, to acquire knowledge and skills that, that can be used for important work. It also, you know, exposes you to a whole network of people, uh, thinking deeply about this and working on human rights. I think that's extremely important. Um, and also very important. And this is how I was kind of really viewing uh, a graduate degree at the time I was considering it. Um, I thought it would give me the space um, to, to kind of test some of my ideas uh, and to figure out, you know, what specific aspects of human rights that, that I wanted to work on. And, and unfortunately, I found it uh, at that stage, uh, but I thought it was going to be very useful in helping me do that. Absolutely. I, th I think the, the, one of the values of, of an advanced degree is, is very much that, that you can do a deeper dive into those areas that really interest you. Mm -hmm. because. The field is so huge, right? The mm -hmm. human rights field. So a master's pro master's degree gives you that kind of flexibility to really kind of get into your subject there and to become a critical a critical thinker, if, if you like, about these. Yes. Yes, Vicky. And now that I think about it, I think that, you know, one thing that I feel like maybe I missed was that, you know, uh, I was so deeply immersed in a very specific aspect of human rights that in some ways, maybe I was not exposed to the whole sort of ecosystem of the of the field. Um, and so I learned a lot about the one thing that I was working on, and it was very deep knowledge and experience. But it was only later where I realized there were some gaps in my understanding that I had to go out and fill. And it was only once I filled them, like really, you know, what is the role of civil resistance movements in connection with, you know, UN human rights mechanisms or in, you know, mediation and conflict resolution or peace building, other approaches. And it requires sort of deliberately and in, in, in carefully going out and seeking those other types of knowledge that you may not otherwise be exposed to if you haven't had some sort of formalized training. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there is a place for it. But as you say, it shouldn't detract from you doing this work in, in the in the bigger, bigger sense. Um, and perhaps thinking a bit more on, and, you know, you've been in your role for, as you say, 20 years there. And I'm sure that across your desk, you've seen many resumes and cover letters um, for um, people working in your organization or, or, or more widely there. And for those young professionals who are starting to think about this sector, how do they present them their best self, mm -hmm. if you like, on paper um, in a way that, that impresses the potential employer? Mm -hmm. um, something I get asked a lot and I, and I always ask um, my interviewees. Yeah, I'm so interested in how, how you might answer this question, because I think that part of our sort of hiring process is, is it may be quite unusual and that we're, uh, you know, like others, we're, we're, we're looking for individuals that have the you know capacity to sort of think rigorously um, and critically. I think that's really important. Um, our approach at, at the Einstein Institution uh, really hinges on our ability to think in new kind of non-traditional ways about existing problems. So, you know, I look for an openness to new approaches um, and, and sort of uh, into innovative solutions that that's important. Um, but, you know, being an effective communicator, whether in writing uh, or in speech is, is also extremely important. So much of, I think all of our work 
really requires this capacity to speak persuasively and also very clearly, to think clearly and speak clearly about these topics and to recognize really um, the power uh, and care we need to, to of, of, you know, how we discuss these topics and the care we need to employ when talking about uh, these topics and, and also vulnerable communities. Um, and, and on that topic, I think there needs to be a, a level of humility uh, in doing this work, you know, uh, recognizing really the agency of the people we're seeking to support, uh, centering them and their needs, their ideas and their solutions. I, I can often pick up on that in, in, in you know, resumes and, and uh, cover letters. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something actually what you say has come out in, in, in other um, interviews as well, that showing the kind of impact of what you're doing, not only what you, you've done, but how it's benefiting mm-hmm. those people that you're seeking to help mm-hmm. and, and making that really abundantly clear in, in your resume, in your cover letter there, that, you know, what you're doing is to serve the, those communities that you're looking to help. So I think, you know, what you're saying def- definitely resonates there. And something that you mentioned earlier, um, when we were talking about the advanced study there about networks and growing our networks. And um, we know that sort of in the human rights sector, the networking and building a, a community of human rights professionals and allies is really important. And for young professionals who might feel a little bit sort of reticent or diffident about doing that, what, what's your advice um, on that point around networking? Yeah, networking can be, you know, we're, we're constantly told about how important it is, but it, it can be really, really intimidating, especially when we're trying to reach out to people that are often very pressured, they um, are very, you know, uh, I don't know, prominent. Uh, it, it can be it can be difficult to know how to do that. Um, so for me, networking has been very important, um, you know, initially, in a way, I got lucky because I uh, applied for a position that ended up opening a lot of doors for me. Um, and since then I've been really fortunate uh, to, to develop a really sort of vast network uh, of people who've been you know, working and thinking really deeply on, on nonviolent action uh, and how it can advance human rights uh, and, and political freedom. It's, it's that network um, that I'm now, you know, drawing from as I'm developing my own work further uh, to draw from their insights and expertise over so many often decades um, to do a couple of things. And, and part of it is to, you know, identify what the, the gaps are uh, in, in our field um, and how our work could could fill those gaps. Um, also, you know, among this network are people I've been really fortunate to to call my mentors. Um, they've played a huge role in helping me navigate some of the most difficult and complicated issues that I've encountered in doing this work. Um, and that's been hugely valuable because, you know, as we know, human rights work is often really sensitive. Um, and difficult, um, and we often struggle with figuring out, you know, how we can how we can get it right. And that sort of intergenerational, um, th- those emotional and other resources could be could be really helpful in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I would second all you say there about the networking that it, it can be invaluable to us um, in the work that we do and, and building a, a strong kind of connections with with others who work alongside us mm-hmm. um, 
And I suppose kind of aligned to that a little bit is, again, for the young professionals, is, is sort of the value of undertaking some sort of um, internship, voluntary work, pro bono work. Now, I know there's a whole conversation, a parallel conversation there about the, these opportunities being paid. And of course, we want them to be paid as much as possible there. But the, the value of, the, of that, let's say, just work experience, if you like, as a, as a, as a first step, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Pro bono, voluntary work as a first step. Yeah, I think we, you know, we we touched on this a little bit in terms of, you know, some of the entry points to doing this work, which is often the kind of movement organizing uh, at the community level, which is, you know, usually unpaid work, um, and how that can, you know, how engaging with communities can can help people. Uh, you know, how they're how they're a great opportunity to learn about issues, um, about how to work together with other people, how to develop these networks. Um, and again, figure out what interests us and, and what we're good at and how we can make a contribution. And, and as you said, Vicky, though, I, you know, I often do struggle with this because I think I'm, I'm sometimes not comfortable with the degree to which our field sometimes requires uh, sacrifice excessively and hardship um, in order to contribute to it. Uh, we need to reduce the barriers to participation and not make it so only people with means have the capacity to, to, or have the opportunity to, to contribute um, is we're going to miss out and, and we're not going to, uh, you know, uh, allow for that level of participation that's really required. Um, and, and, and as you said, you know, in the most cases, people should be compensated for their work. Um, and yeah, so I just, I'm, I'm, I'm always very cognizant of that and careful not to abuse, you know, the, the sort of passion and desire that young people have for the field. Uh, and to, to make use of their time and skills in a way that, you know, that's fair. But um, I think everything depends on circumstances. I've done uh, plenty of that type of work. Uh, in a way, I'm doing plenty of it right now. Um, you know, it's good to be able to, to pay your bills, but none of none of what we often do is, is, is for personal enrichment. So in some ways, we're going to be lifelong volunteers doing pro bono work for this people. Yeah. yeah I like that lifelong volunteers exactly I mean we, we do things just because we're it touches us in some way or other right and we want to just right. kind of do that work and it's deep within us um I wanted to kind of move to the next sort of set of questions around sort of the, the day-to-day life of, uh, of a human rights professional sort of a, a, a peek into into that and and perhaps you might share with us and the listeners here about um your work at the Einstein Foundation and, and just a typical day what might a typical day look like for mm-hmm. you I know we're in the midst of the pandemic so it might be slightly different sure. but, uh, yeah yeah so um the Einstein Institution is a uh as you said in our, in your introduction, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization based in Boston in the U.S. Um, it has uh, sort of two main mission areas. Uh, one is to conduct research uh, on nonviolent types of action, uh, a technique of action that employs social, political, economic uh, means uh, to make social and political change, to preserve rights and freedoms, to resist occupations um, on behalf of climate issues, and on and on. Um, uh, so, so to look at this type of action, to see how it works, uh, what makes it succeed, and what are the factors that, that lead to failure, to, to really look at how we can actually make future struggles more effective than the improvised struggles of the past that we're often employing great bravery and creativity 
and persistence, but often were not conducted in accordance with a strategic plan. And we think that's important because um, these types of ad hoc movements are increasingly you know, uh, uh, ill-prepared to deal with today's challenges, especially against powerful opponents. So research is extremely important and, uh, and that's part of what we do. The other part is to share the results of that research. So to develop resources, publications, uh, other educational initiatives like consultations and workshops with groups that are actually conducting struggles um, to uh, yeah, share resources that can help them figure out what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and you know how to do it in accordance with a strategic uh, plan. Um, so the information is, is generic in the sense that it's uh, really big picture theoretical insights and global insights that we've distilled from other other. Uh, cases and throughout history or, or movements taking place around the world. So that's that's the sort of description of our organization. Um, and our and our day to day is not very typical because our work is often very responsive um, to inquiries from people uh, who are sort of seeking resources or guidance on on some aspect of uh, education or strategic planning for their movements. Uh, oftentimes, it's in the midst of a it's in of a crisis or a moment of opportunity where you have maybe, uh, you know, a sort of awakening, a mass awakening, and you suddenly have a moment of mass mobilization and then, and people are trying to figure out or, or leaders in the movement are trying to figure out what they can do or how they can channel that energy in a way that is productive and sustainable. So uh, we have to be responsive of the needs of, of, of people. And sometimes that, uh, it comes about all of a sudden. Um, the kind of more planning part of what we do, I mean, part of what we're doing right now is is, is developing a, a platform uh, of multimedia material uh, that movement leaders can incorporate into their trainings. So there's a there's a huge need for this educate these educational resources on 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 what to do and how to do it and how to do it effectively. And we have uh, a lot of sort of text based. Uh, theoretical kind of very academic works that are really difficult to apply. So we're thinking about how to translate this incredibly important academic research in ways that can translate to uh, to be implemented by movements themselves to, to, to make what they're doing more effective. So uh, the development of that platform is something that we're working on that means that um, we're studying different model pedagogy models of looking at, you know, how do we teach this topic? We're thinking about how to do research in new ways that kind of broadens out from just the scholarly research. Um, we're coming up with a, right now we're working on a case study uh, documentation guidelines that, that movements can use to do the sort of ongoing self-assessment about what they're doing and what's working and what's not working. And that can be a way to kind of assist their own learning, but also that can be used across regions um, so that others can learn from, from what, what people in, in countries far away are doing. Um, and overall, we're doing a lot of sort of uh, soul searching and strategic assessment of, of our own to figure out how we can sort of better respond to the scale of the demand for these types of resources. And really how best can we decentralize the processes where you know we give the ownership of the educational process of how people learn how to do this back to people themselves um, and, and how we can better learn from what they're doing. So incredibly broad and wide, I think we can say in terms of, of the types of work that you're doing and, and, and the, the types of um, activities that sort of sit under your under your 
um, purview. Yes. And, and thinking about, sort of thinking a little bit about the your time with the um, organisation, what have been the highlights or highlight, there might be one, um, mm-hmm. of your career to date? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. I think, um, you know, you may have picked up that, you know, it's extremely exciting work and, and I find it very sort of dynamic. Um, so there are so many highlights and it's hard to hard to sort of pick one. I think, um, you know, for me that I had the privilege to work with Jean Sharp is has been just you know massive and learning from his sort of wisdom and insight you know he was the scholar that founded this field and this organization and who initially hired me and you know took a chance on me with the extremely limited experience I had and the lack of knowledge I had and he thought that you know I could grow to make a contribution and and that he did that was you know has changed the course of my own professional life um, so for that, I'm extremely grateful. He was a, a very special person, obviously, and brilliant in the context of this work and understanding this topic, but also extremely generous as a mentor. And, um, and so that has been, that's been an un, un, unparalleled um, highlight um, that I was able to witness the, uh, the sort of breakthrough in this work. You know, he had been conducting this work for so many decades, uh, often under difficult circumstances, being told, you know, maybe it was not important or it was, you know, uh, not useful. Uh, and and so, but he carried on with it. And then, you know, around the sort of Arab Spring, we saw globally um, that although not perfect, uh, you know, that when people are organized and disciplined that they can achieve really important things without violence. Um, and that his work had played a role in helping people to see this new way of doing conflict, and you know, witnessing this affirmation that he got and that the field got, I think was was a major highlight. And and on a more kind of ongoing basis, just seeing how people facing the most difficult circumstances are innovating and adapting, um, and all the sort of bravery and creativity and, and and persistence and strategic wise thinking that's happening is 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 uh is just major grounds for hope and um you know uh just uh, amazing to be able to observe absolutely I, th- I think kind of we could say that every every week month whatever we, we have sort of mini highlights and things things that really kind of keep us motivated and inspired to do this work right because sure. we know that it can be very tough and very hard and um and i suppose the flip side of that is um again sort of thinking back through the annals of, of time and the, the work that you've done, what sort of, what have you faced? Has there any setbacks or challenges? Um, yeah. yeah, in your in your career, yeah. Yeah, I think that you know, um, it, it was it was so many years that 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 I did this work. You know, it was, uh, and I started so early uh, that much of it was, um, you know, it was really difficult to figure out what my own role was going to be. Uh, you know what my unique contribution was going to be. Uh, much of it was in, 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 I wouldn't say in the shadow of this great mentor and this. You know, it, it, there's something to be said for working with someone of that stature. You know, Gene Sharp was the main person in the field for decades, and I, I felt that my job was to support what he was doing and to learn as much as I could, but mainly to enable his work. So when it came time to figure out what was going to be my contribution beyond 
beyond Jean, uh, that was a, a major challenge for me. And it took some time, you know, it took some time to kind of get my bearings, um, to, to figure out how to transition this work, to respond to new challenges in the world, that the old way of doing things had, you know, that those ways were extremely important and impactful for the time that we did the work in that way, in the way that we conducted academic research and the way that we did workshops and trainings in, in quite a top-down way, that actually maybe my contribution was going to be to innovate the processes whereby we did the research and the, and the trainings uh, and that that could be impactful in itself uh, and that that contribution could be unique. But, but getting there was really hard and confusing and um, and and um, ultimately, you know, I mean, I'm still sort of in that transition stage, but I feel I feel really positive about it. Absolutely, and I, I always think that you know these setbacks they might take us in slightly different directions there, but you know they're all learning experiences. Somehow we learn about ourselves, we learn a little bit about the sure. the world around us, and, and so I think they, yeah, at the time they're a little bit kind of disconcerting, but but we do learn from them. That's right, and it kind of neatly brings me on to my, my kind of next question here in, in this kind of set of questions, exactly what you say there about the value and importance of mentorship. You've spoken about the, the mentorship that you've received from Jean Sharp. And, and for young professionals starting out, something I always say to them is, is you know, find a mentor or indeed mentors who can walk with you along your, your human rights journey. And you might have different mentors for different things sure. in your career. And I just, you know, wanted to kind of get your insights about that whole piece around mentorship and what it might mean. You know, I've been so struck recently about really how the challenges we face are often, you know, both very unique in the way we're experiencing them, but really quite common to so many others and in different generations, you know, as, uh, for example, women in the field, as young women as you know, for me, a woman of color, uh, a person who had been very traumatized by war uh, and, and who had come to the US as a, as a refugee. These are, these are conditions that feel very uniquely mine, but are, are not really in the sense that there's so much uh, guidance and comfort and all of these things that can be gained from, from talking about them. And so mentorship has been extremely important for me. I think, uh, you know, in a way uh, we really have to, in our field, you know, I'm increasingly learning about this is, is how we have to preserve sort of this intergenerational learning. Because sometimes it feels like we're reinventing the wheel and we're not doing a good enough job to explain to the next generation and to learn from the ones previous, you know, the previous generations. And there are these massive divides where we think we have to, you know, create it fresh again. And 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 we need not do that. And I and I think there is so much that we can gain from uh, from from bringing that knowledge through. Uh, and making sure that it's conveyed to the next generation also and, and making the time for that, you know, mentorship, both in, in, in having a mentor and being a mentor. I mean, it's, you know, it's something we have to kind of put the time aside to do that. But I don't think it's a, you know, it's a it's a luxury thing. It's something that's really quite central to our work is the way we, you know, preserve its sustainability. And how else are we going to, you know, train and include the next generation of people who are going to carry this work forward i'm not going to be doing it forever <laughs> that's not how it works so mm -hmm. you have to make sure that it's not going to you know it's not going to end with us 
yeah. and to make sure it's it's really effectively continues, not just it continues in some way. So I think just navigating issues and problems, um, and and the highlights too, the great moments that you know, uh, it's it's in the course of doing this work. I think uh, learning from mentors is is a, is a really important. Um, and you know, I've taken on those roles now. It's really amazing to get that feedback about what what it means for people to have mentorship. And it's amazing because then they see that we are just like them, you know, that we grappled with those same issues that are common to young people across so many generations, and that we don't have it figured out now, nor did we at any other point, you know, that we came to where we are because we, you know, grappled with these issues and struggled with them as they're struggling with them today absolutely I think they appreciate that that you know we have been in their shoes and we've done that sort of walk as well there and, and so what we can share and impart to them has resonance and value and and so um sure. and this is a, a big sort of part of why I why I'm doing what I do now with the, the podcast series um the, the final sort of um thing I just wanted to touch upon is um the nature of the work that we do as as human rights professionals there that it can be incredibly tough on us both um, emotionally physically we can work in very challenging parts of the world on very difficult issues um, and how we protect ourselves in a way where we can still do our work in a meaningful way um, but that we look after and take care of ourselves and it's a conversation which is really starting now I think it's always been there but very much now for for the human rights sector so again sort of um, I suppose my question is twofold how this has affected you but secondly what advice you can impart to young professionals thinking about working in this sector and and that whole um issue around self self-care and, and and looking after yourself yeah i think it's so incredibly important and i think we have left it out of uh the conversation for far too long i think when we think about you know how can people be effective leaders in this field how we ourselves can make important contributions it's often a focus on you know the skills and capacities that we need to acquire uh, and to have and to develop, but it misses the point about what we need as as, as human beings, uh, as with with personal issues, you know, uh, and that we're not just you know uh, professionals and human rights actors uh, and political actors, but but individuals with complex needs. And I think we we've left that out of the conversation. I think it's been to our detriment. Um, because uh, it's important to, it's important to consider mental health needs and all of that. Um, for me, to the extent that I, you know, I, I, I mean, I've struggled with it a lot because I think for a long time I thought, you know, I need to be healthier, you know, in terms of my mental health so I can do my job better. And that also is not quite right, you know. I think um, I'm realizing that. Um, yeah, I mean, let's just say it's an ongoing process for me. I think much of what I felt for so long was that I was motivated by anger at injustice and that that was what drives me, right? The, the pain at the situation of the world. And that didn't feel very healthy and it didn't feel very sustainable because it might be motivating, but there's a huge cost to it on an individual basis. And for me, there was. And it took some time. I mean, part of it is, you know, spiritual practice for me has been really useful 
thinking about, you know, you know, trying to incorporate meditation and, and things like that. And, um, and uh, religious traditions and, and other kind of spiritual practice uh, to, to figure out, you know, how we can have more awareness about that aspect of ourselves. And what it has meant for me is that I've been feeling that I'm now, you know, I'm, I feel more motivated by a sense of, of, of care uh, and, and, and dare I say love, you know, than anger and hatred and, and of, of oppressors, you know? And I hope that makes sense because uh, it's been really profound for me as um, something really, really important and an important breakthrough for me. So that's just a sort of personal bit. I don't, I don't really have any answers for any, for anyone else, but I think, you know, a lot of what we deal with is really difficult and we can, sometimes we, we look at our reactions as somehow abnormal. And, and I think at the very least we have to see them as, as completely valid, normal reactions to what are often really uh, difficult unjust situations. And that recognition is a, a good first step. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, at least our sector now is opening up the conversation about this more, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's so important because, you know, as you said there, to do our job well, we need to be well as well, right? We need to be sure. sort of well mentally and physically there. So, but thank you for, for, for sharing your own sort of um, journey on that. So sort of drawing our, our conversation to a close, um, what do you think is, you know, final, I suppose, pearls of wisdom um, and, and pieces of advice if people listen to the podcast and still think, yes, I, you know, the human rights world is for me. I think there's a place for me here. What would you say is the sort of, I say, the best piece of advice that you can offer to them? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. I wish I had an answer <laughs> to that. Um, I think that, um, you know, for so many of us at any age, and especially for young people, it's can be such, you know, a difficult and and it can be so confusing to, to, to navigate our world, especially now with these kind of overwhelming issues around uh, the future of our planet, um, you know, uh, the future of, of democracy, of human rights, the rise in authoritarianism. I think there are these issues that feel really unsurmountable. Um, you know, thinking we're going to solve everything all at once is is unrealistic and extremely unlikely. And so I guess at the same time, it doesn't have to take forever. I think, you know, for me, in my experience and in my understanding and observations of what people accomplish collectively, you know, sometimes uh, achievements and success comes in bits and pieces, you know, really incrementally, very slowly, but sometimes it comes quickly and with big realizations as people kind of collectively lose fear of opponents, you know, and demand their rights and freedoms. It's a, it's a really, really amazing thing to witness in the world. Um, what do I mean by all this and what does it have to do with a young, you know, person kind of making their way out into, into human rights? I think for me in the absence of those big realizations initially, maybe, maybe we just prepare ourselves, you know, figure out what we need to do to be ready when they come, 
because they do come, you know, the opportunities come, the realizations and big insights and light bulb moments, they do come. Uh, if you if you work at it, if you put yourself in the right spaces, if you you know read and educate yourself and and just trying to understand the world better, they do come. And I think the idea is just to to be ready for them um, because that makes a, a lot of things possible. Um, but to be patient too. I mean, uh, sometimes they take a little time. That's right. Yeah, that's what I say to the impressions there. That, you know, it, it's about kind of small wins sure. sort of from time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Final, final thing, sort of just a sort of a shout out, really, where if people are interested to find out more about your organization, about you, where and how can, can listeners find out more about you and or reach you and the organization? Sure. So I, uh, I can be reached through the website of the Albert Einstein Institution, uh, which is uh, at aeinstein.org. Uh, where there's uh, a lot of information and resources about our approach and also uh, contact information. Should anyone uh, have anything they'd like to, to share or ask me, I'd uh, be very glad to be in touch uh, with your listeners. Um, and I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, my first and last name, Jamila Marquis. Thank you. Jamila, you've been a wonderful guest and, and thank you so much for, for being so open and, and sharing with us your own story and your insights. And I, I know that, that listeners will really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you so much, Vicky. It's been a pleasure to speak to you.